Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram and our guest Alice Tomlinson. Hello Andrew. Hello Simon. And hello Alice. Hi there. Right, well first of all I just want to say thank you to Alan Brock for being our guest uh, on episode 15 two weeks ago. Um, Really enjoyed that chat and the claustrophobia and mild peril of being stuck in a slot canyon and uh, how you managed to survive that so um, (laughs) really enjoyed that Alan Uh, so thanks for being with us then Um, okay let's talk about this week and let's head over to Andrew and the Cambridge Fens Um, so uh, what have you been up to since our last recording which is actually a month ago uh, I know I know to be honest large format wise I've been developing some of that x-ray film I've been shooting in the pinhole camera, and I've been thinking more about projects. Uh, and this, and this is very appropriate given uh, given Alice's nature of Alice's work. But my trouble is fitting in these projects, you know, and f- squeezing them into work time or available time that I have. So the projects I've been I've just bought some liquid emulsion, and listeners can go back and listen to. Uh, ooh, one of the early shows. Episode with, uh, two. Is that what it was? It was, yeah. With, with, Graham, um, Vasey. with Graham Vasey. Yeah, so I've been chatting with Graham off and on about uh, liquid emulsion. And I've, I'm going to... X-ray film is really difficult not to scratch, so I'm going to embrace, embrace the scratches as part of the inverted commas art and uh, brush my liquid emulsion just onto watercolour paper and then do a series of images based on the fens um, but I'm going to just practice on some of the x-ray stuff I've been shooting recently. So I've been thinking more about ideas. Uh, I have a few other projects that have been bubbling under for two or three years, uh, all of which are darkroom-based, and I'm just looking forward to having more free time uh, at some point over the coming year to to concentrate on those. Other than that, I've been spending money. My Julie doesn't listen to this show, so it's fine. But uh, nothing large format-related, Um well, I did buy a lens, Simon, for my uh, RB67, 118mm mm-hmm. F-something or other. <laughs> that, I was going to say, that's that's of a camera that you not that long ago you were selling as well, isn't it? No, no, no. I sold the Pentax 6x7. Oh, I had oh, two. Right. I'm confused now. Yeah. yeah. So I had two 6x7 cameras, and I, one of them had to go, and I kept the big heavy one, which is the RB67. Uh, for reasons I won't really go into. No, so I've sold that. Uh, I also bought, uh, repurchased actually, a folding SX70 camera, but a slightly different model to what I used to have. And um, uh, the influence partly by you, Simon, the Horizon mm. uh, panoramic rotating lens camera. I've got one of those coming from... Uh, from Russia. You you familiar with those cameras, Alice? Um, I've got the Pentax 6.7. I'm not sure um, if it's the same version yeah. of yours. Well, it could be. Yeah, but it's. I love it, but it's unbelievably heavy. And I also did have some um, few issues with um, the shutter getting stuck and stuff like that. I think yeah. That- now that's. I think reading might, that happened to me once or twice, and it kind mm. of solved itself. There's all sorts of discussions online about that, but uh, it can be a problem when it just sort of stays up, doesn't it? Or the mirror yeah. stays up. Is that the one? Is that the... The what, sorry? The mirror locks up. Yeah, I think that's what was happening. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm, I love the, I mean, the quality of it is gorgeous. And I never, I've never really been able to get on with the Mamiya's rangefinders. Um, so I like the 6.7 because, you know, you're seeing directly what you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know lots of people really love the Mamiya 7s, but I don't know why I've never just... Oh, no, I haven't got one of those. I've got the RB67, RB67, which is the rotating back. Uh, the Pentax or Mamiya? Mamiya. Oh, you've got the Mamiya, right, okay. The Mamiya RB67. Yeah, I've never... I even bigger, that. even bigger than the Pentax. Oh, wow. Yeah, I soon realised the Pentax um, was a little bit on the hefty side because I did a project <laughs> a few years ago called Following Broadway where I walked the length of Broadway. Well, I was planning on doing it every day for three weeks, but it's about 14 miles. Um, and after about three days with the Pentax 6-7, I realised um, that was a little ambitious. So I ended up doing sections of Broadway rather than the whole thing. But I shot the whole project on the Pentax 6-7. Broadway is 14 miles long, is it? Um, it is. Well, it was when you, I started down at kind of Battery Park City near the Statue of Liberty and oh, went yeah, up beyond the Bronx. Yep. So, yeah, it is. Uh, 13.7 or something like that. Um, wow. That camera was really pretty heavy for walking that amount of or that distance over and over. So I had to reassess my strategy. Um, but I do love it, although saying that it's kind of been sitting in a camera bag for quite a few months now, unused. So I probably need to get it out again. Just one one thing on the on the Pentax Six Seven. Um, I've now freed my um, Aero Ektar lens from its housing um so it's now al almost ready to be shot i just need a, a speed graphic a large speed graphic not the baby speed graphic that i bought by accident uh, oh that was ben reynolds wasn't it <laughs> yeah it was all ben's fault yeah and uh but i've seen pictures where the, it's been adapted to the 6.7 um, mm. must be using some kind of uh, helicoid system or something like that and uh, they've i don't know is that is that a lens are you, have you come across the aero ektar lens uh alice uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I don't even know what lens I've got on my... I think it's the standard one that it came with. I only have one lens. Right, that's okay. <laughs> well, just to... to I'll, I'll, keep this, I'll keep this very brief. Um, okay. The, the Aero Ektar lens, it's, um, it's a it's a aerial reconnaissance lens from uh, uh, Second World War. And, uh, but it's it's um, on 5 by 4 it's probably a, a long... It's a long standard in focal length, but it's an f2.5 lens. So mm. you, if you shoot it wide open and you need a focal plane shutter at the back, so you, because it doesn't have a shutter in, in the lens itself. So it's restricted on what you can actually use it with. Um, but what it does give you is an incredibly shallow depth of field and the outer focus area um, swirls or can swirl as well. Mm. So there's another worldly uh, look to it. So mm. uh, after the show, I'll I'll uh, give you a, a few links. Well, yeah, that'll be interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think looking at the, your your work that you've done, I can I can see how an Aero Ektar could fit in your life, but you would uh, <laughs> you, you've got you'd have to make some changes to your uh, to how you take photos. So uh, right. but, but there's we're, we're well the lenses out there that I need to explore. Oh, certainly, certainly. But uh, well, that, that's why I get off on things anyway. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll move on from that one. But I, I just Simon, I, go on. Sorry, don't you also have the the Lomography brass lens that they reintroduced? But it's basically the copy of that old meniscus Petzval lens. That's sort of uh, the, way well. It Yes, although uh, Petzval isn't a meniscus, isn't mm. a meniscus lens as, as, mm. as such. So, uh, or at least in my mind, it's not anyway. Isn't it? 
no, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it isn't. Um, but uh, yeah, I do have that Lomography lens, which you can do wonderful swirly things with. But it's it's yeah. a full frame, thirty five millimeter uh, size lens, so uh, yeah. we won't dwell on the on the little format uh, just just now. Um, no. But what I, I do want to drag you back to something you said there about scratching X ray film. Mm. Um, because I don't do it on purpose. No, I, oh, I know, I know. It's it, as you say, it's it's very delicate stuff. But I can't remember who it was as one of our guests. Uh, but they came up with a, a, a great tip uh, for processing that, and that was to actually put uh, a sheet of glass in the uh, in the, in the yeah. tray. So, yeah, I do that. I do that. Oh, okay. Well, you shouldn't have any scratches then. I know. <laughs> but if you do get any you don't mind so that, that's well, what matters, I, suppose. I, I cut it down so i have these sheets of eight by ten x-ray film and uh, it's so if, if i can put it straight into an eight by ten camera if i had one well i have a eight by ten pinhole camera so i can put it straight into there and then if i'm careful i get very few scratches on the big sheets i think what's happening is as i cut as i cut it down for my uh five by four camera despite trying to take care i think i'm probably just slightly damaging the emulsion in that process of cutting it down using a guillotine mm. i think that's what's happening but no for development i follow um i follow a very simple method because you can develop this x-ray film on a uh, under a red safe light but the stuff i'm using has got emulsion on both sides so you can't really put it into any kind of uh, proprietary film developing tank real like 20th century camera or uh, the mod 54 inserts for developing sheet film because at some point the emulsion gets touched by something and you know it gets marked so i i dilute rodinol or rodinol to one to a hundred and put it in my tray with with a glass sheet on the bottom and then i set the timer for five minutes and I just gently push the sheet onto the glass and with no agitation, leave it for a minute. And then you flip it over and leave it for another minute, flip it back and leave it for another minute. And so you do that for five minutes. And because it's a very high contrast film, unless you're, unless you do something that minimizes agitation, um, you know, you can get really, really difficult to control negatives. But with this system, the tonality is, is, is fine. Uh, and so I'm going to combine but you use very hard to avoid scratches with the best will in the world when you're cutting the film down. But I reckon if I just brush on some liquid emulsion onto, onto watercolor paper and it'll just add to the, mm. add to the character. Plus I'll be printing, I'll be using a large format in larger, which has got a color head and the color head will also minimize scratches because it has a different type of head in it called a diffusion head as opposed to condenser heads, which emphasize scratches. Okay. Ooh. Well, I was lucky enough to see the Sally Mann show at, in Paris recently, and um, oh. her prints have just covered in scratches, but they're absolutely beautiful. Yeah, there you go. She's a proper artist, and mm -hmm. she's not worried. Someone else I've been speaking to online, Tina, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Tina Rowe, Alice? Um, I don't think so. Um, Tina's worth checking out. She okay. does a lot of stuff around... Um, transracial adoption issues that she's from, uh, and also ideas around identity and self. Okay. She, I've spoken about her before, but she picks up oyster shells 
on the Thames embankment and brushes liquid emulsion into them and then old photographs of families and found images she projects and prints onto these shells and does so and and the images are kind of distorted like questioning questioning identity questioning heritage um, how things get distorted over time and the fact that the shells have been discarded and found really really good stuff so she was over there she was interrailing (laughs) oh wow she went to uh, that show yeah it's really really good Uh, i'm just uh i didn't i didn't know about sally man and i so i've just had a a quick google and i found a site and this 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 podcast you know it always just leads to other other people you think oh wow that's fantastic yeah, we need somebody well, else we need to put on the list to, to talk to. But so, that's, wow, that's uh, really, it would be really interesting if she, work. if she agreed to come on. I don't know. She, I just finished reading her biography, Simon. Oh, here Still. Is it, called, is it called Here Still? Yes. Yeah, I just yeah. got it actually, but I haven't read it yet. And uh, it's a very interesting story, Simon, because if you're not familiar with her work, she, she came to, let's say, notoriety, public awareness in the probably 80s certainly the early days of the internet she was for many years photographing her children in out in the wilds where they lived in america and uh, as the work she she shared her work and she says that she was quite naive really in in the way she shared her work but she came under quite i was going to say this is ringing the bell now yeah yeah she came under quite a lot of criticism but you have to read a book to to get a balanced view of her and then she's just produced, I've got this big coffee table book called, I think it's called The Crossing, which is full of, full of images and writing. A thousand and stuff. crossings, yeah. A thousand, a thousand yeah. crossings, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. That was um, the kind of catalogue for the exhibition. Well, it's more than a catalogue, it's a gorgeous book. But that was, yeah, produced when the exhibition first opened in America. I wonder if it's going to come to the UK. I don't think there's any plans, sadly. But she did have a show at the Photographer's Gallery a few years ago. She did, and I went to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I kind of did a slightly extravagant day trip to Paris on Eurostar to see it because I really wanted to see it before it moved back back to the States, I think. the, the uh, There were some video video installations as well, I think, in the Photographer's Gallery showing her... I think there are some videos you can find of her coating her glass plates and things, and how mm-hmm. she does a. I had one in she, Paris showing her process. Yeah. Yeah. In her studio in, in the states. Mm. Mm. I'll email her, shall I, and say. Might as well. Yeah, in, in for a penny. Mm. So, uh, any any more activities? No. Okay. Mm. Well, let's uh, quickly uh, cover off uh, something that I've been up to. Um, and I've shared a few photographs uh, of this, although I don't actually, I don't think I've shared them with the large format people because I've been using smaller cameras, but uh, the whole driver for this is because of issues I've had with large format photography, which I've spoken about in the past. And that's my inability to trust uh, the shutter speeds of my old uh, lenses and uh, with their old uh, shutters. So I think, yeah, I, I, I do, I just, um, what's the word? Um, I certainly head towards uh, old lenses. I just gravitate towards them. I just like like the look of them. I've got nothing wrong with nothing against modern lenses, and and there's always a, a good reason to use a modern lens. But I just like the look of older lenses in in general. Uh, but that usually means it also comes with an old shutter, and uh, old shutters 
are not necessarily that close to uh, you know the, the, if it says it's a hundredth of a second well is it a hundredth of a second and and I've, I've had a few issues with some some photos and uh, and Bill Orford actually has uh, been kind enough to have a look at one of my shutters uh, for my uh, 152 millimeter Ektar uh, and it's a it's a supermatic shutter which I know is a bit ropey in in, in with with some of its shutter speeds so uh, I invested uh, a while back. I think I invested the, the sum total of around about eleven, either eleven pounds or fourteen pounds, something like that, uh, for a cable um, from an eBay seller in Romania, and uh, we'll put the link up uh, to to this seller in in our show notes. And all it is just a cable that plugs into the microphone of your computer, um, and you then need a light source. To go on one side of your either your camera or in, or in our case a, a lens the lens board with a um, lens and shutter in there and the sensor goes on the other side and then you set your uh, shutter speed to whatever you want to set it for and it uh, shines its light through the lens and shutter and the sensor detects how long it, the light was available so uh, from that you can then pop this into a program called Audacity, uh, which is a free download program, which is actually the the, uh, the program that I use to edit um, podcasts. Um, so I'm quite familiar with how that that uh, that that uh, program works. And from from that you can you can zoom in because what it actually does it 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 it, it looks like a sound wave. Uh, that you can see and you can actually see where the lens opens and where the lens closes and you can measure the distance between those two two activities and from that you can then work out in milliseconds how long uh, the shutter was open and then you can convert that into uh, into fractions of a second and therefore you can compare and contrast what your shutter is actually doing and I've got a lens, a lens and a shutter in front of me, and it's uh, who makes this lens? Well, actually, the lens is Carl Zeiss, but I think it's like an 1890s Carl Zeiss lens. It's a convertible lens as well, so you can unscrew the back and you get a different focal length, uh, which is quite handy. Um, I've not actually shot with this this camera yet, this lens yet. Um, actually, is it a Gert, is it a Kurt Gertz or is it a? I think it's a Gertz uh, shutter, but it's it's quite possibly as old as the lens. So you're there thinking, well, you know, how accurate is this going to be? And I, so I tested it last night, and it, it allegedly goes up to 150th of a second, um, but that's actually producing shots of around about a 90th of a second, and 100th is doing something around about 80th, and uh, 50th is around about 40th of a second. But the thing is, with these things, it's each individual speed has its own actual speed so it's not a case of well if it's 10 percent out on one then it's 10 percent on everything it just doesn't work that way so um my idea behind all this is to because i'm not going to get this i don't know if it'll ever work any better anyway uh, if it was serviced so it's a case of if i actually know the real true speeds then i can then compensate uh, my exposures with my aperture so uh, that's something that i'm now embarking on Sounds complicated. <laughs> I guess it depends how far off individual shutters speeds are. Yes. As to whether you need to worry really and then what film you're using as well. Absolutely. If you're, if, if you're placing shadows carefully down into the uh, into various zones and you've determined the exposure index of your film you want to use, then you may 
know, this is another variable that you probably want to take factor of. If, uh, but I guess if you're using that old gear, then it's good that you need you need to know these things. My first, when you first told me about it, I thought, well, why? You know, just go out and make photographs. But then, I, if you're happy with the images, don't do it. But then I've got, I'm using relatively modern lenses, you know, so um, and the shutter speeds sound about right you know and i'm mainly using one lens i think if you're just using one lens and your images are fine then um you don't need to worry but with your old stuff yeah i can see why you might want to do that are you using more than one lens on your large format camera alice i actually um no i only i only own one lens yeah. my large format camera and i shot the entire book with one lens yeah, the portraits, the landscapes, and the still lifes. The still lifes I used an extension rail, so I could get a little bit closer. Um, but actually, yeah, I mean, I feel really amateur in some ways. <laughs> well, not amateur, but just I, I have very little equipment. Um, oh, that's really good. Simple, yeah. partly because I'm just my my main interest is the ideas rather than what I'm yeah. using kit wise. But I also find I've always been very much. Um, into kind of minimal kit so mm. even w whatever camera i'm shooting i would always for instance prefer to move towards my subject or away from my subject rather than stick on a longer lens or um it just makes me kind of think more clearly about what i'm doing so yeah i mean i probably look a bit ridiculous with uh, I, I just bung my bung my large format camera in a muji wheelie suitcase um with a bit of bubble wrap and um bundle around with that um, but yeah, the whole project was shot on, um, I think it was 150 mil, which is, I gather is quite a standard Schneider lens um, for that for that camera. So yeah, I just kept it really, really simple, really. Um, but now there's a whole new world of large format photography that I'm aware of. And it, I can see how easy it is to start thinking about, um, oh, what if I got that lens or what if I use this model? Um, but in the end, I the way I work is, is very kind of simple and straightforward, really. So mm. for me, it's worked just using one lens. Obviously, there's certain scenarios and situations where that lens wouldn't necessarily work or it wouldn't be appropriate or it wouldn't give me what I wanted. But in terms of the Exvoto project, um, it, it, it was easier for me to strip it kind of down and simplify things, really. I, so I, I've, I'm not sure if, I've, if we've talked about it on this show. We probably have, and I've certainly mentioned it on the, the other podcast that I, I do. But limiting your, your equipment is something that I, I find admirable um, mm -hmm. in, in a person. So I just can't do it. I just, just cannot do it. Mm -hmm. And for and, and when the, the Sony World Photographer of the Year 2018 <laughs> <laughs> um, starts talking about I don't actually know what my lens is specifically. Um, I think that just says everything. You know, it, you know, we can we can just obsess over gear, over lenses, and things like that. But there you are. You're going out there using one lens and making do and producing incredible work. Mm. It, it's it, it just it just shows it's it's it really it's it's more about the mental condition uh, <laughs> that some of us have that we striving for the certain kind of look and that we just can't quite get that look. So if I did this, then I'll mm. I'll get that. Because there, there was earlier talking about the uh, the Aero Ector, you know, and I can see how an Aero Ector could fit in with your work, mm. but it doesn't have to because you don't need it because you're mm. actually going out getting 
you're actually getting a similar kind of look at times with with, mm-hmm. with with what you've got and then you can do something completely different with it with what you've got and it just shows you know just how much imagination and how you, you're able to work with the limitations of what you have to create amazing work well thank you i mean i suppose it's partly financial as well obviously you can spend so much money thinking i need this i need this and it's going to make my images better but i think in the end um it's down to what's in your head more than what equip you know what particular lens or camera model you have it's more about your idea and your approach to to your subject really that's how i find anyway um that's how i work um but yeah i mean now i've started getting a little bit more into what model i'm using and should i buy a new camera and all this kind of stuff and then i have to remind myself that actually i bought my second hand large format camera probably a good 10 well probably longer 15 years ago now with one lens and it's actually kind of served me served me very well um but yeah i, I don't know it's difficult because it's always tempting to think your work i don't think your work is going to improve you know the more you spend on equipment put it that way um i think your work is about your drive and your idea and really about what you're trying to say rather than what lens you're using but of course it's really tempting and also you it's interesting is it interesting to use different equipment to try different lenses because it can obviously affect affect the outcome and the, the feeling of your images and um the emotion you're trying to say can vary depending on your equipment but with me i'm almost now a bit worried about using a different camera but that's partly probably because there's a certain level of not superstition exactly, but I feel that I've been quite lucky with my with my really old kind of simple way of working. So I'm a little bit reluctant to to change that in a sense because it's worked so well for me so far. Um, but I obviously also made things quite difficult for myself. You know, I don't even use a field camera, so I'm often walking for miles, miles and miles, a bit like kind of military fitness training or something, it feels like, with this really heavy studio camera, really, because I, use I used a Sinar F2 for all of my ex-photo work, which is not really designed to be used in the field, you know, it's much more of a, a typical studio camera. Um, and now I'm thinking, actually, that's a bit mad and I'm probably going to get a really bad back. Um, so I should think about a, a field camera, something much lighter, but in terms of the actual quality of the images it's produced, um, I mean, I've been really, I've been really happy with it. And also, I'm quite disciplined. So, for instance, when I go out for a day shooting, I'll only bring maybe three dart slides. So I've got a maximum of six shots in a day, for instance. And I won't bring a tent for changing or the pop-up tent I have. And and then I'm, that makes me think much more kind of critically and carefully about what I'm doing as well. But I think every photographer has their own kind of way of working and their own techniques and for me, it's more important about what I'm trying to say through my images. And I probably look like a bit of a nutter sometimes with my kind of suitcase wheeling it through bogs and fields and over rivers. And um, probably if some people who are really into large format photography saw my kit, they'd, um, they'd be a bit shocked because I've got a light meter, really basic light meter that I've had, you know, 20 years or so. Um, but it works and it works for me. So I suppose that's that's what's important, really. But I don't try not to get too bogged down in whether I could have a better camera or more expensive lenses, because um, for me, it's not it's not really about that. But I can see how easy it is to, to fall into that because it's quite addictive buying equipment as well and then testing it out. Um, but yeah, from a kind of personal perspective, it's more about my ideas and what, what I'm trying to say than what equipment I'm using technically. 
if you're going to end up with scratchy negatives and brushing emuls emulsion onto things, use a pinhole camera. You know? mm. I love that as well, that people are really experimenting more now with, with how photography works and with imagery in that sense. Like, there seems to be a lot of really interesting things going on in terms of photographers trying, yeah, different films or lenses that aren't supposed to be used with certain cameras. I mean, that was part of Sally Mann's kind of technique, if you like, was that she would use old antique lenses that, that vignetted at the edges. Um, and that was part of her style um, that weren't, she was using lenses that weren't necessarily supposed to be used with those particular camera models, but that was what became kind of synonymous with with her work and the mood and the kind of haunting quality to her images um so i don't know maybe maybe in the future i would will try yeah different i'm sure i will diversify a bit and try different things but for the moment my kind of very basic setup um seems seems to work for me so I, I, I feel I need to quarantine myself from you uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, my, my whole attitude to photography, it seems, is that if I'm not sure, and, and I think this is one of the problems is I, I don't always know what I actually want to go out and take. And I think it's far better to actually have a clear idea of the photograph that you want to take. Whereas for me, I'm thinking, oh, I've got some time to do some photography. I feel like doing some photography. What shall I do? And then I'll look at my cupboard. And I'll, th and I'll look at the lenses that I've got and I'll think which lens suits the mood that I'm in at the moment because then that will actually give me my subject matter of the day. I think it can work that way around too. Um, and I do have, I mean, I, it's not that I don't have much kit. I've got loads of kit, but, you know, I've been working as a commercial photographer as well for 15 years. So I've got like every format. I've got film, I've got digital Um so it's not that I'm only only shooting large format and that's what I'm familiar with. I kind of have to be flexible, really. So, I mean, obviously, over the years, I've spent, I dread to think how much money I've spent on equipment. It's not that I've only got one very cheap camera and that's it. Um, but in terms of my experience of large format photography, then, yeah, it has been fairly basic in terms of the kit, I suppose, because I bought the um, Sinar, yeah, probably 15 years ago. I remember from Teamwork in, in London second hand with one lens and a few slides and a changing bag um and then when I started my ex-photo project I actually started the project shooting in medium format color and it just didn't work at all and then that's why I moved into large format for that project I already had the camera which I kind of dusted down and got out of the cupboard because I realized all all along that it just needed to be such a slower more considered precise process um, so that was a real turning point for me, actually, with with that project moving to large format, and that's really that's when I felt like I'd finally cracked it. And it seemed so obvious before, um, but it just completely changed the way I thought about the work and the relationship with the people I photographed as well, um, and just the fact that yeah, it just gave me a much more thoughtful approach to what I was photographing, working with that format. Well, um, that's it for my week. <laughs> um, so, uh, Alice, what have, you, what have you been up to for the last couple of weeks or so? Um, so, I've been away quite a lot recently, actually. Um, I started very tentatively a new project in Italy about a month ago. So, I was in Venice for a week, and that was with my with my large format camera and it was actually after that trip that I thought I've got to get something a bit lighter because I'm worried I'm gonna completely do my back in with this now 
um because I was carrying it up really steep stairs and over rivers and I realized it's probably about a third of my body weight is a bit mad um so I will I will look into different different cameras to continue that project but this is a very I mean my projects take a long time you know ex voto was five years from start till finish although the images in the book were actually taken in the last two years but it was really three years of me figuring out what the hell I was doing and what I was trying to say and also during that time I did an MA in anthropology to really enrich my thinking and my thought process I suppose so I'm not I don't take photos all the time and I'm not a kind of quick worker and to a certain extent I feel a little bit of pressure about what I'm going to do next because I'm so I mean I've been so surprised at how people have taken such an interest in next photo and obviously winning the the Sony World Photographer of the Year I never never expected that in a million years um, and that also came with a lot of press and it was all a bit of a strange experience because suddenly there was like TV appearances and lots of newspaper articles and stuff. And it had been a very quiet project that I'd just been getting on with really on my own mostly for a number of years. So to suddenly get quite a lot of media coverage and publicity was, it was a bit odd. So I felt that after I had the book out, I needed a bit of space to really think about my next project. So I have tentatively started a new project, which is not dissimilar to Ex Voto. And there's some kind of recurrent, or recurring themes there I guess um and then I was just away for a week yes in Italy for that project and then I actually got back from the Republic of Belarus yesterday because I was there for 10 days I'm now working on a film about a nun called Vera who was one of the main images from the Exvoto project and she appears in in the book Exvoto as well and she is an orthodox Christian nun who lives in a convent, a monastic convent in Belarus, and she's this extraordinary character. And I'm making a film about her. And the reason that really happened was because when I won the Sony Award, that came with um, quite a generous amount of prize money, which is great because at that point I was completely skint having spent so much money on the project. So at least I got reimbursed for some of that. But also I received a small grant from them I think it was £5,000, so not that small. Um, but so I wanted to finish the project with that grant, but actually they said to me, oh, you know, that the the grant, you have to use Sony equipment because I got given a Sony camera and a lens as part of my kind of prize. So I thought, well, I can't go back and finish ex voto shooting on digital because that just won't work because that's not how I've shot the whole project. It's a completely different way of working. But obviously I wanted to to use the money in a kind of significant way. So I actually decided to start making a film about Vera. She she invited me to her convent and I went with my assistant, who's also a very accomplished filmmaker in her own right. So we've now been four times and we just I just got back on Wednesday. Um, and I've actually quite got used to life in a convent. Um, <laughs> I think my mum's worried I'm going to like move to Belarus and run off um, and join the convent, which I'm absolutely not. But there is a com- kind of rhythm to the life there. And um, there is something quite attractive in a way about such a, well, I say it's a simple life. It's not really because they work so hard and it's actually quite complicated on many levels. But I like, you know, I like how possessions aren't important to them. They have these vows of poverty obedience and chastity and you know in terms of poverty you know you can live with very little and still have a very rich life so it does make you think about things like that particularly when we're caught up in our very fast-paced kind of consumerist world um so yeah I kind of 
got used to life in a convent really but then I was actually quite pleased to come back to North London in the end although the Holloway Road was a bit of a shock after spending a 4.30 a.m prayer every day for 10 days and then being in these very kind of quiet confined and serene spaces and then suddenly being thrown into busy London but that's where I've been anyway I got back from Wednesday uh, from Belarus on Wednesday and that is looking like it might be the final trip for for a film because I made a short film about Vera already that was shown at the uh, Rencontre Art Film Festival and that was a result of the Sony grant but also she's such a rich character that we've decided we're making a longer kind of 40-50 minute film about her which will probably be released next year but it's all shot in a very similar way to Ex Voto as well so it's it's very still it's very quiet it's all shot in black and white um, but it is shot digitally on Sony equipment. So when you when you're doing a, a project like this with with, with well, let's talk specifically this one with with Vera, mm-hmm. um, it it sounds as though you you were immersed in mm. in the in in convent life and you were was was that was that how it would does that how it has is that how well, it has to work is that you know to get those kind of uh, those those kind of photos that you become part of the activities and things i'm immersed as much as is possible for someone who doesn't believe in god <laughs> um i'm not religious myself so um although these trips have definitely changed my perspective on what religion is all about and it's given me a lot of respect for people's beliefs that i feel well, I didn't have respect before, but I just didn't really get it. I didn't understand it. So it's really made me reflect about my own decisions and my own life, really, and, and how we choose to live our lives. But yes, I mean, definitely through the Ex Voto project and through the film about Vera, immersion is absolutely key to really understanding the way the way these people live. Um, the first trip, was went really well but you know you're building up trust the whole time and these are not these are communities that have not been documented that widely um they're quite secretive in some ways people don't necessarily know what goes on behind you know the kind of monastery doors if you like so in terms of showing our commitment I mean we've been four times now and each time we go the the sisters at the convent and the patriarch it's very patriarchal still the, the father andrew who's the patriarch of the convent um you know they see us there and they see us how how committed we are to to making something really hopefully special and moving about about their work but for me with the expoto work for instance it wasn't until i immersed myself as, as fully as possible that i really saw results or that the images really had the kind of feel that that I wanted so that was not something that could have happened quickly or that could have happened um if I'd kind of gone in on a surface level I suppose so for me it's really really important that I understand what I'm photographing as much as as much as is possible I mean you know I'm I'm not going to convert to orthodox Christianity but still having spent a lot of time there having talked to the sisters having got to know Vera really well there's a trust and an understanding there that doesn't come quickly or easily, really. So I'm, I'm fascinated now to mm-hmm. to see how, uh, I, I, I assume you they, they knew your position on, on faith. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They weren't, in a sense, they weren't that interested in that. I mean, we would get into discussions because they were interested that 
two, you know, relatively young British women had kind of bundled over to Belarus and were using their own money to fund these trips. And of course, the subject of faith and religion came up as it did with the Exvoto project. Um, but it was never an issue. And I was always very honest about my beliefs. Um, so I would say, well, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm interested in what motivates people to to be religious. And, and I want to understand why you have such a strong faith. So, yeah. So with the go uh, and carrying on from, from, yeah. from that point, does, do you think that that's, um, uh, you're, you're a, a, let's call it an opposing view, uh, on, on, on faith. Did that, did, has, has, has that shown itself in any way, do you think in, in the, the images that you produced as in from the, your perspective and that of the of, of Vera and uh, and the nuns and such um i think with the portraits for instance in the ex voto project there's a real intensity to them i think that's partly the people who i selected the photograph it's partly their strength of faith that comes through it's partly a result of using the fivefold camera and that changing the dynamic of the relationship but I think there was a great respect on both sides, actually. And I think people were soon aware that I am really, hopefully, or trying to be very sensitive to their to their views. So although I may not uh, align with the, the views that they have, I'm not dismissive, dismissive of them and I'm not critical of them. It's about trying to find an understanding. So I think with the portraits, for instance, there's a kind of connect, but there's also a disconnect. So there's, in a way, they're intimate and there's intense, but there's also a little bit of difference or distance rather there. And whether that would differ if I, you know, was a strong, for instance, Catholic when I was shooting in Lourdes or if I was a strong Orthodox Christian, I don't know. Um, I think I think they were aware of my kind of working methods if you like and and responded positively to that because they were seeing that I wasn't trying to ridicule or criticize their way of life it was more about exploring it and trying to understand it so I didn't I, I don't know I didn't see it as a hindrance but I don't know how if the portraits for instance or the film would be different if I was very religious myself I mean in a sense I don't although the film is about a nun I don't want the film the film isn't going to be kind of super godly if you like it's more about the human relations or the human challenges that we all share just because she's a nun with a strong religion that I don't share it doesn't mean that we don't have things in common you know there's common ground there that's on that's very much on a human on a human level that we can all relate to um so yes I don't the answer is I don't really know <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe the portraits would be different if I was very religious but also maybe if I was very religious, I wouldn't be driven in the same way to try and understand people's um, reasons for their faith. So it's difficult to say. Yeah, this is this is this is fascinating. I'm, I'm aware, Simon, we haven't formally introduced. I was, I was, was going to say, shall we, we introduce Alice? But uh, <laughs> do you want to do that then? No, I, I was I was going to say, Andrew. I mean, I'll let you carry on with uh, with your train of thought there, and then perhaps after that, we'll uh, we'll we'll find out a bit more about Alice. Yeah. I, I, so the more I've read and watched and and listened to you on on the Vimeo talk, which I think was at the side gallery with your sister, and hmm. I, I mean, I have to declare, I don't talk about this on the podcast, but I'm a a, a lay minister in the Church of England. Oh, and, right. Um, 
but I, I, I wouldn't, uh, and I'm really interested when people talk about religion, because I don't actually consider myself religious. Mm. I'm religious about a lot of things. I'm religious about cleaning my teeth in the morning. I'm religious about uh, the meals I eat. I'm religious about uh, going to the loo. Sorry, but you know. Uh, but I have a, a, a strong faith in Jesus Christ uh, and what he did and, and and the promises he makes but um all the stuff that goes around it i um you know if i go into a, a high anglican church or or a roman catholic church i get a bit kind of anxious really because I, m- my dear cousin was was buried last week and the service was in a roman catholic church and you know when they start wafting the incense around mm-hmm. and spraying the water with my son says he's he's using a brush from B&Q I said I'm sure it's not it's, it's probably a proper religious brush I've no idea um I get a bit kind of un- uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. um so it, for me it's not about you know the, the the structure and the ritual and 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 I'm I'm really, really fascinated by you know how, you, and we, and I guess we just need to come onto this in a minute after we've introduced you formally. But talk about you know this idea of pilgrimage, and you know how your preconceptions changed. I know you, you know you're, you you did this three year course in sort of anthropology and and whatnot. Um, but the the idea of pilgrimage, what it means then, what it means now, and and how your views on it have, have changed, and all those sort of things, and and being being with these people, you know, and and thinking, you know, from a sort of, uh, I don't know whether you'd describe yourself as atheist or agnostic. I, I, you you kind of referenced it when your parents were in the audience in that mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you said something about being brought up in a kind oh, of left lefty. Yeah, brought up in a lefty, liberal, non-religious. Yeah. Yeah, family. Yeah, me too. Me too. I was as well. Mm. And uh, so, being immersed with these lovely people like Vera in that convent, in that place, you know, I'm thinking, well, what? D- d- some people would put themselves and say, well, actually, I'd quite like some <laughs> of what they've got. What is it that they've got? You know, and did, did those sort of feelings ever come to you? Oh, I would love. I, I, in a sense, I see the strength that they have through their faith. Yeah, and I do envy that in a sense you know i would like to have someone else to talk to or think about or be with or however you want to put it um in terms of spiritual guidance and that kind of thing um so in a sense i i i kind of think oh i wish i could have a bit of what they've got yeah um I mean, I understand about the whole ritual side of things as well, but in terms of making a film, it's actually been brilliant because it's yeah. so performa- it's so performative a lot of I it. I know, yeah. Um, so it's 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 fascinating really to see that, and also the differences between the way it's done in in Catholicism and how it's done in Orthodox Christianity, because there is actually quite a lot of difference there in terms of yeah. the services and the liturgies and the icons and the blessings and the confession <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. So. Although they, they share a lot, there are also differences there kind of visually. Um, but no, certainly I, yeah, I, I, there's, a, there's a sense of not just how they live their lives, but their belief structures that I wish I could tap into a bit more. And I suppose it's marked, isn't it? You know, you get, but I just can't imagine what it's like to go, you know, to Belarus in this kind of environment, in, this, in, in, in a convent when you're away from, you, you, 
you've you've got a structure around your life a simplicity and then you're thrown back into i don't know which part of london you are but i mean it's just i live right uh, in the arsenal football stadium yeah i mean it's just <laughs> mad it's just mad and crazy and and yeah. and you know you do you find yourself sitting looking at people on the tube and thinking where are you going what are you doing you know why are you looking so anxious oh, what is yeah. it you know Absolutely. there's more to life <laughs> i also see the anxiety that the sisters and the nuns have i mean their lives yeah. are not um, they're, they're certainly not easy no. and the same the same problems arise or the same difference there are differences there like there are in any community or any wider society yeah. so they're not they don't they're not living this kind of perfect life sealed off from the outside world um, but I suppose what I really saw, there's a there's a huge amount of compassion and kindness there. And although they spend hours and hours praying every day, they also, for instance, work very, very closely with um, men and women who have been, well, I mean, these feature in the film a lot, the wider community. So men and women who are ex-prisoners or ex-drug addicts. Um, Vera herself was actually an ex-drug addict, and that's a whole story that we go into in the film about how she became a nun because she was addicted to heroin for many years. Um, and they work very closely with people who are really on, on the margins of society but also really facing the end of their lives because if they don't do something about it, they're, they're not going to be around much longer. So there's this sense of kind of transcendence and redemption and the strength you get from community so actually what they're doing is is kind of complicated on many levels as well um and also what fascinated me about the sisters is first of all I thought oh it's a very simple life um but it's actually a really radical life <laughs> um what they've chosen to do and what they've chosen to give up I mean there are also sisters in the monastery who were married and who have children and they they obviously been blessed to join the church later on in their lives and they see their family very infrequently but I mean that's a hugely radical decision to to have a fairly conventional life if you like and then to give all that up to to dedicate yourself to God but what's also quite funny is that when I first went there I thought because they they kind of live by these monastic rituals from the fourth century and things like that that they would be completely um in their own world if you like but they're all on whatsapp all the time so they're all kind of you know that they're not it's not like they they are disconnected from from modern society i mean they are in a sense but um in another way they're actually very reliant on technology for the convent website and you know stuff like that they kind of operate as a business in a sense the convent they they make goods and they sell goods and they rely heavily on donations so so it does operate as a business but i was really surprised at the amount of um, community reach they have so I mean I don't really go to church very much well very infrequently here and I mean I wander into churches because I'm interested in the the, um, the kind of atmosphere of them and I do find them very peaceful places to reflect but in somewhere like Belarus like faith is still so strong so the the services and the liturgies will be absolutely packed out with people from the very young to the very old um, so it's still really at the centre of their society faith in a way that it's it's not so much well in in the UK and Europe well not all the Europe it varies but certainly in in the UK. Um, mm. Hmm. Simon. <laughs> well, I I think it's uh, as as we uh, mentioned a, a short while ago. I think I think it's about time. Um, we learnt a little bit more about Alice herself, mm. um, although I think we've learned quite a bit already, to be fair. Um, so, um, Al Alice, um, 
it, it, it's what's interesting to me is I didn't actually know uh, much about you until uh, Andrew told me about you. And uh, and when I was doing my extensive research, as I do, 15 minutes before the programme started, um, I was gobsmacked when I when I saw that uh, we were going to be interviewing the uh, the Sony Wolf photographer of the year for 20, 2018. And I was thinking, where did that come from? <laughs> and, uh, and I just met, we've got this little chat room with uh, a few other podcast hosts and uh, one of those hosts is um, a chap called Ian Barnaby Nutt, um, who, oh, yeah. uh, and he is uh, he, he hosts a podcast with uh, Sveen Goran. Sveen, is it Goran or Olaf? I can't remember mm. now. Humberset, anyway, Sveen Humberset, um, and uh, they they talk. Their podcasts are generally about projects and mm -hmm. uh, motivations for projects and, and things like that. So uh, um, I was thinking, oh, this is right down the end street, this is this conversation today. But he, more to the point, though, he said, oh, I bought Alice's book. Yeah, oh, yeah he recognised his name from, yeah. from buying it, yeah. That's it. So uh, so he says hello, by the way. Oh, hi. <laughs> I've never met him, but no, I do. I, I think we're on Instagram. Oh, I've seen, I've definitely seen you on Instagram. Yeah, I know the name. That's it. So uh, yeah, oh, we've uh, got a wild fan in the background there. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, so that's, yeah. that's that's brilliant. So um, perhaps you can um, tell us a little bit more about your your, your journey into photography, mm -hmm. um, and you know, in in general terms, and also uh, how how you actually stumbled across uh, large format and uh, anything else you might want to say, really. Okay. Um, well, it's I don't think there's ever really a conventional way into photography. It seems so. I my family is very um academic so my sister's an academic my dad's an academic my mum was an academic um so I suppose it wasn't it's not that creativity wasn't encouraged because that's not the case we're always a very kind of creative family but not necessarily in an artistic way I suppose um but we were lucky that we were brought up surrounded by books a lot and I would watch loads of films with my mum and dad and I always thought perhaps I would be interested in I don't know, a career in the film industry, maybe cinema, cinematography or something like that. But I didn't study, for instance, I never did photography for A-level. I didn't do photography at university. Well, I studied English literature and, and communications, but I was very, I, I remember, this was a long time ago now, but I did stuff, I did do photography for the student paper. My dad gave me an old Pentax 35mm. So I did kind of dabble in photography and I remember doing a black and white, it was a city and guilds. I don't even know if city and guilds are still going anymore, but it was a city and guilds course in Leeds that I did, which was a bit camera clubby, but was actually, I remember, you know, 10 men agonizing over lighting an, an apple in a bowl or something for about three hours and thinking, oh God, this isn't really what I want to be doing. But saying that it taught me a lot technically and it, you know, it gave me access to a dark room and, um, I really, really enjoyed that, but I suppose because of my background, I had never really considered photography as a as a career choice. And also, my mum was always really worried about not getting a proper job and being freelance, and how would I possibly survive? So it wasn't that they were unsupportive, but um, it had just never. It, I wasn't from a hugely artistic family in in a in a in terms of um, practicing artistic skills. You know, it's not like my dad was a potter and my mum was a painter or anything like that. Um, but I obviously had a real interest in in kind of visual visual storytelling, I suppose. And I used to roam around a lot with with the Pentax dad gave me. And I, there was actually a module I remember quite clearly at university that was a visual module where you had to make a film or do a series of images. And I was born in Brighton, so I went back to Brighton and I did a series of images about Brighton, which obviously looking back were not that great. But at the time, um, I think I was quite 
pleased with them. It was about decay and ruin in architecture. And and anyway, the tutor really kind of raved about them, which was a bit surprising, and said, have you ever considered a career in photography? And I said, well, not not really, and, and left it at that, really. Um, but then it was a bit of a long, laborious story. Anyway, it was <laughs> I was at university, and I was living with people who were doing languages. And when you do study language at university, it's generally a four-year course as opposed to a three-year course. And they were all leaving to spend a year in mostly in, they were studying French, I think. Um, and then they would come back for their final year. And I suddenly thought, oh, no, if I, you know, if I'm doing a three-year degree and they're doing a four-year degree, I'm not going to have my, my best mates to live with. Oh, why don't I suddenly, you know, I kind of basically I made up of a year's work experience so while they went on their, I, I got permission from the course leader to do this. So while they went on their, off for their years abroad, I did work experience in a lot of different places in, in London. At that stage, I still really didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of a career. You know, it's great studying humanities, but it's not like you're studying law or medicine. It doesn't necessarily point you in a, in a certain direction. So for that year, I did work experience all sorts of places. I was um, I worked at the press office at the V&A Museum. I worked at a fashion magazine that was absolutely dreadful. Um, I I was beauty assistant at Marie Claire for a while. So at that point, I thought I maybe wanted to get into the magazine world, or but I didn't. I didn't really know. But I also did um, some work experience for Time Out magazine writing at that stage, which I did enjoy. Um, sorry, I hope this answer isn't just a lot. It's quite a long answer, so I hope I'm not boring you. But um, I, after that year, I went back to university, did my final year, and then it was kind of graduation time thinking, oh, gosh, what do I do now? And I really still had no idea. But I actually decided I wanted to – I was in my early 20s, and I just always had this thing about New York. You know, I'd seen it in the movies, and I really wanted to live in New York. So I got an um, internship at a film production company in New York and – much to my mum's horror I went on my own and um, decided to live in New York for a year the film production company was awful it was um, they were real kind of slave drivers they were quite exploitative in terms of what they got their interns doing and I just I just didn't enjoy it at all apart from I did hilariously have a cameo in a film um, a very <laughs> very very tiny part in the background which was quite good fun but that was like the highlight um, and it wasn't really a cameo um <laughs> you were, you were an extra <laughs> um anyway uh so I love being in New York but I didn't enjoy that and and actually Time Out magazine had just launched Time Out New York at the at that time I'm not sure when this was it would have been like 90 I don't know late 90s I guess um and at that point I was what I was really enjoying was being in this incredible city this vibrant city this exciting city going around doing street photography with the old pentax that my dad had bought me 35 mil black and white so i did love that and time out had just launched i'd done some work experience at time out so i thought well why don't i write to them on the off chance and see if they need any writers i didn't want to leave the city but i you know i wanted to have some kind of structure i needed to earn some money I also then thought, well, might, might as well just send them a portfolio of black and white images that I've taken just to show them that I'm interested in photography as well. And again, looking back, it was quite a basic portfolio. I mean, I put it in a little, I mean, it was nicely presented, but it was um, it was a bit of a, a slightly random thing to do. Um, but I just thought, well, I've got nothing, nothing left, you know, nothing to lose. So I might as well just get in touch and popped it in the post. This was even before we were really using email that much. 
And then um, I actually got a call from them. Like it was a bit of a dream call, like a couple of weeks later saying, well, we don't need any writers, but we're looking for a photographer to shoot the whole Time Out Guide to New York, which was the travel guides that they published at the time, which were actually very popular. I mean, now, you know, travel publishing is a bit of a thing of the past, really, because people tend to rely on apps and online guides but at that point you know if you went traveling with real bible almost the guide you would take and it would always be your absolute kind of um yeah personal guide to a city so I got this phone call saying would you like to would you take on this commission and obviously that was that was brilliant for me so I got to really explore the city very 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 thoroughly over a, a number of months and I got to know New York very well um and that was all shot on film. It was all shot on slide film and black and white film, which seems really, really almost archaic for a travel guide now. But that, that's how it was. Um, and it just meant it was just a real adventure for me. It was hugely interesting and very exciting. And I felt very independent and I got to know the city very well. And I think it was at that point that I thought, you know, maybe it's possible to actually make a living from photography. Um, and after a year or so, I finished the guide, came back to London, continued to work for Time Out, doing a lot of their travel guides. So it took me all over the world for a number of years. Terrible pay, like absolutely, if you worked out, you know, absolutely terrible pay and incredibly hard work, very rigorous days. You had to be very disciplined. Um, but I shot guides to, it was mostly North America and Europe. So I did, um, I did Washington, D.C., I did Vancouver, Toronto, Venice, Copenhagen, Barcelona, I mean, many more. I've, I've got them all sitting here next to me. And um, it was a great way to see the world, and it was a, a great way to kind of learn the ropes, if you like. You know, I was working for a magazine or the publishers. I had a big picture list that I had to, to get through, so I had to be incredibly organised. But it was also a bit misleading because I got, once I was back in London, I thought it would be really easy to get um commissioned photography work and I soon realized that wasn't the case so I actually then enrolled in a postgraduate photography certificate course or degree at Central St Martin's School of Art which was a year which was my only really apart from the City and Guilds course my formal training if you like but it was a really great course and it was at the old St Martin's which is now foils on the Charing Cross Road, but it was a brilliant kind of decrepit old building with paint splattered sinks and loads of arty people wandering around. So it felt like you were in this really quite special environment. And after that, it was probably five years after that, that I then thought I can't, you know, I was doing a number of part-time jobs and I thought either I go for photography, I kind of go for it or I don't and I need to make this decision. So I decided, no, this is absolutely what I want to do. And now I couldn't really imagine doing anything else. But it wasn't a straightforward trajectory into the photography world. And it was years of assisting and working in bars and um, doing, you know, bits and pieces to try and allow me to to still make my own work. Um, but it was a, a juggling act for a long time. And it's only really been with this project, Exvoto, that I started five years ago that I made a really conscious decision that, I need to invest like emotionally, mentally, financially as well in my personal projects because that's actually where I'm most fulfilled and it's easy to put off making that commitment and I just had to kind of decide if I don't do this now, I don't know when I'm going to do it and if it means that I lose out on commercial jobs because I've been working commercially for a number of years, then then so be it, you know, I'll just have to rebudget that this is actually what I want to be doing. So that for me was quite an important psychological switch, if you like, in terms of thinking, 
this is what I want to pursue now. And although, of course, I still have to do commercial work, um, my personal work is now my main focus as opposed to the other way around. For years, I was just worried about making a living and paying the mortgage and really boring things like that, which obviously you have to do. But I didn't find it. In the end, the commercial work wasn't fulfilling to me and it wasn't why I was driven to do photography. So, um, yeah, I've made this kind of shift in my practice, I suppose. Right. So, so the, I mean, you've come almost, almost up to date there with uh, ex, ex voto. And yeah. uh, I'm just, just wondering how you got the idea to actually do that project. What, what sparked that off? And um, just, to, just to also say, you know, it took you five years to do it. Um, why? Yeah. So interesting to see, you know, the, 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 the genesis and uh, how, how that product uh, project saw itself through. Mm. So I started, I suppose about five years ago, I was at the stage where I thought I really want to, as I said, invest more in, in personal projects. I want the, the shift to kind of change to focus on that. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I've always been really interested in films. So I watch a lot of films, fiction films, and I watch a lot of documentaries. And I saw a film called Lourdes by a, I think she's Austrian, um, director called Jessica Hausner. And it was, it was obviously set in, in Lourdes, which is a very famous place of pilgrimage in, in the south of France, in the Pyrenees. And I just thought, wow, that place looks like another world. Like, is that really how it is now? Um, in terms of, you know, the architecture, the kind of setup of the place, the, the rituals that people um, take part in, um, the interaction between the pilgrims. I just, I just was very, very interested in it. Um, and perhaps it was also, I wouldn't go as far as to say necessarily a calling, but it was mainly, well, it was part, partly perhaps that I was a bit sick at that point of just living this very urban life. Um, and I do love the city and I, in some ways I don't imagine I'll ever leave London, but I think at that point I was craving some time away from it and some space to really just think and um, it sounds a bit cringy, but kind of be in nature and just be in a different environment. So I saw this film and I thought, right, this is going to be my new project. Um, and I can be quite impulsive sometimes. So the next week or so I booked myself on a pilgrim package tour of Lourdes, which, um, they can they they're quite big business these um i didn't realize at the time that they you know make quite a lot of money these travel companies that are geared specifically towards um pilgrim tours so they lured is a big one for them they go to knock they go to fatima um all these these important and significant places of pilgrimage so i quite spontaneously put myself on one and and went for a week and it was quite an odd experience because i was on my own and I was wandering around. At that point, I had brought my, I can't remember if it was the Pentax 6.7, but also the small Bronica 6.45. And I was wandering around and trying to understand what this place was all about. And I, at that point, I think I was quite nervous about approaching people. I didn't really have a style in mind. I didn't really know what I was trying to say. So I had a kind of interesting week, but it felt much more like a recce. Um, but I was also, there was something that that was kind of drawing me to, to what it represented and also the feel of the place because in some ways it's it's very very commercial and quite crass and quite it's a bit like a kind of Disneyland of the Catholic world in a sense I mean it's quite it, the sanctuary itself which is where the grotto is which is where Bernadette had her apparitions and this is why it became this great place of pilgrimage and of miraculous healing and all this kind of stuff um, but the sanctuary itself is is quite a well it's, it's an open space but 
everyone just kind of heads there. And what I actually found more interesting were these quieter, quieter areas or spaces that I found where people would just sit and think and pray for hours. But the first trip, I really took very little and what I did take wasn't very interesting. And then I went back again, this time with an assistant, still shooting in medium format colour. And this went on for about three or four or five, well, probably, yeah, four or five trips. Um, but what I also was doing was that the film, the film called Lured, what particularly kind of drew me to to the film as well was the fact that Jessica Hausner had based it around a, a kind of quite prolific group called the Alder Revolta, who are this um, kind of Catholic organisation, full of quite generally pretty kind of privileged people internationally. Um, so a lot of people come from quite wealthy backgrounds, but they come to Lourdes and they come with the sick. So they come from all over the world, the Order of Malta, and they bring the sick with them. And it was really a week where the sick are very much cared for. There's a lot of compassion on display that I felt I wasn't seeing in London. This very kind of great sense of us wanting to do things for others that was actually, whether you're religious or not, was very touching and very moving. But also from a visual perspective what was fascinating about the order of malta is that they wear these incredible uniforms so the men wear these kind of boiler suit type things and the women wear these they look a little bit like nurses these kind of um headdress things and these huge black cloaks so they're very dramatic they kind of sweep through lured and it's all you suddenly feel like you're actually on a film set so i would time my visits with them and obviously the more frequently i went the more i would understand how Lourdes kind of worked for for the pilgrims so I was getting a kind of fuller sense of why people went there and I was talking to people and I was getting to know people and I ended up actually with a kind of weird residence at this place called the San Mary Frey which is houses a lot of the Order of Malta and looks after the sick it's almost like a a kind of hospital although it's it's where the sick stay so I ended up building a good relationship with them and taking pictures for their website but they weren't the kind of images that I wanted for my own project so I was pulled a little bit between having this great relationship with people at the San Mary Frey and met certain members of the Order of Malta but still not really achieving what I wanted to through my own images um but still at the same time I was I was getting a much greater understanding of of what it was all about really um and that's also when I decided I needed to really enrich my my thinking and that's when I enrolled kind of at the beginning of the project I think it was enrolled on an MA actually in the anthropology of pilgrimage they were very well I think that's the only one that specifies pilgrimage in in the title at SOAS at University of London and that was part-time for Two years, I think it was. So I was in the library. So between juggling commercial work, actually going to Lourdes, I was in the library and I was reading a lot about pilgrimage and reading a lot about um, the history of pilgrimage and people's motivations and how significant it was and um, really getting my head around it in, in that sense. And I actually ended up writing my MA dissertation about Lourdes and about bodily practice in Lourdes. And it was during that time that, the projects were still, it was very frustrating because I was enjoying my academic studies, but still the, the images weren't working for me. They were very much, I might even still have some on my website, but they were like a nice kind of editorial travel story, if you were like. So they weren't, you know, they weren't bad images, but I wasn't really getting to the, the root of, of what Lourdes was actually all about. Um, 
and I can't remember why I was very close to giving up on the project altogether and I just had this kind of realization and I thought well what I really need to do is express how I feel when I'm in these places and whether that's as a non-believer or not but it's also someone who has very much gained a, a deeper and richer understanding of what it's about and how do I express how I feel in these places and and of course what had struck me all along was this kind of otherworldliness that was there that you felt like you were stepping out of somewhere into somewhere into a new world almost um but a world that was in some senses kind of unchanged by time that felt like it was from a different era so I mean it seems so obvious but then I thought well why am I not shooting this in black and white first of all it should definitely be in black and white and second of all I just really need to slow down the process completely and have a much more thoughtful and considered approach. And and how do I do that? Well, obviously, I do that through using large format. Because for me, large format is all about, it's about the the thoughtfulness that goes into it. And it's about just, you know, with my commercial work, I'm sometimes shooting a 1000 images a day. And when I'm shooting large format, I'll sometimes, well, in Lourdes, I would sometimes only shoot one or two images or plates a day. So it's a complete, for me, it completely changed my approach and my way of thinking. And it was when I went back just over two years ago, with a load of black and white film and large format, and I got the contacts back. And obviously, they weren't all amazing. But I just thought, this is it. This is, this is the feel and the mood and the tone and the the sense of a kind of being in a, in a different world and the sense of that faith coming through that I've wanted to achieve all this time. Um, but it took almost, I often feel with projects that you always have to get it wrong in order to get it right. <laughs> i not get it wrong, but you have to try different methods and techniques. But then it came down, for me, it actually came down to, yeah, it being fairly obvious, which was all I need to express. This is how I feel. This is how I see Lourdes. This is how I see faith being expressed in these landscapes and then it became about the relationship between the pilgrims and the and the landscapes that they inhabit really and I then once it started working I expanded it to two other pilgrimage sites a very small one in Ireland called Ballyverney and a really striking one in Poland called Grabarka so that's when the project really began to take shape but it took a long time to get to that point. Alice um you mentioned Bally Verney. That yeah. I heard you speaking about that, uh, and I, I hadn't quite realised how kind of immersed you were in in Lourdes because I got the impression that Bally Verney was. You were going to go to Knock, weren't you? But that was kind of a bit too tacky, I think. So. Yeah, and it was a bit similar to Lourdes, really. Yeah. yeah. So this location in in Ireland, this ah. is this is something to do with deer, wasn't it? I forget the story. It was a, it was um, kind of dates back to pagan times, really. But it was um, often these pilgrimage sites have all got these kind of great stories attached, which you could see as mythical, or you could see as actually happening. But with Ballyverney, yes, it's between um, kind of Kerry and Cork, that part of Ireland, hmm. and it's it's a very small village, and it dates back well hundreds of years ago but there was a story of a a woman having a vision of nine white deer and that then allowed people or caused people to who visited the site where she had this vision to um result in these certain miraculous cures um so their health would would hugely improve and 
and um, this soon spread around around the region. So when you actually go there, there's a holy well, and then there's an old church, and people do the rounds. So they do prayers at different points on this site. Um, and what really struck me about Ballyverney, which was very different to Lourdes, was that it was incredibly central to the community there. So it's a very small, very tight-knit community. No one has, um, you know, when I went to sometimes send prints, for instance, to the people I photograph, no one has, like, a, a house number. You just say their name. And Ballyverney, so it's, it's a tiny place. Everyone knows each other. But this, yeah, this is called St Gobnate, the site, the pilgrimage site. And it's incredibly kind of well-loved and known by the locals. And you will often get people who live there, the locals who will go there every day to do the rounds and say their prayers, and it becomes part of their their daily existence, really. But that was, Ballyverney was lovely because um, I did become, well, I felt like I was very much part of the community after a couple of visits, and I ended up having a really, a really um, sweet little exhibition in that they've got a tiny, tiny art centre there. And it was lovely because the whole community it was probably the best kind of private view I've ever had, actually, because it was the whole community and there were people from teenagers to people in their 80s. And it was just a really, really lovely atmosphere. And this woman, Betsy, who's actually sadly passed away now, but I remember her saying, oh, it's so lovely that you put us on the map. You put us on the map and we're as important as Lourdes. And it's so wonderful. And I just had these really great kind of interactions and experiences with people who I would never meet in my everyday life um and yeah they they kind of became they became my friends really I mean it was quite funny as well one guy I photographed called Joe Kelly who sadly isn't in the book that was an editing decision with the publisher but um he's a great guy with kind of like whiskers and white hair and he's a brilliant character everyone everyone knows him in the village and um we kind of struck up a friendship I mean, I, I spoke to him for about two hours when I first photographed him, and I um, <laughs> it was it was only the day after that I thought I couldn't understand. I thought he was talking to me in Irish the whole time, and it turns out he was talking to me in English. I couldn't understand a word he said, so I was just kind of nodding and smiling. Um, and and now I've got quite a, I can I can understand him much better. We've had a few funny days out together, and I know his his daughter's really lovely and. Um, he got me and my, my, my dad came to visit on on the homemade uh, moonshine or whatever it is they produce. Anyway, he's quite he's a good character. And it was just very funny because uh, when the project kind of came to a close, it turned out that I was known in the village as Joe's woman. He's <laughs> about <laughs> um, But it was, just a, it was just a really lovely atmosphere, the opening I had there. And it was just really nice to be, I mean, the Irish are generally so friendly as well, but it was really lovely to be accepted and kind of brought into the heart of a community and I think what this project has shown me is the importance and strength of community which is something certainly living in London that we often we often lack um and there was something really nice about the closeness of people there and everyone kind of looked out for everyone and I mean in a sense you can say oh everyone knows each other's business and there's something appealing also about living a fairly anonymous life but but the fact that this pilgrimage site was so, such a significant part of their lives. Um, so, for instance, there's some young girls in the book who are all kind of uh, altar girls, if you like, who who are, who are still, you know, I went to mass on the Sunday and it's still very well attended. So it's very central. Their faith is still very central to their, their daily lives, really, in a way that it's not in other parts of 
well, is in Ireland, but other parts of Great Britain. Um, so yeah, it was it was really lovely to be so accepted, really, I suppose, in, into the community. When you uh, first turned up at Valley Vernie, so clearly it's a tiny community. Did you just uh, did you arrive in a car and get your signar out, or did you yeah. go and make contact with people? How did the how did the project evolve in Valley Vernie? Because you know you're pretty conspicuous, aren't you? Yeah. Mm. So I had a um, I went on my own the first time. I went on my own most of the times, actually. Um, partly because I could only I couldn't afford assistant an assistant for every trip, and um, I knew it was quite a small place, so I kind of had booked into the local hotel, and I went up to the site, the St Gobnet Shrine, and where the well is, and I did I did get my camera out, and you would get um, some days would be busier than others, so you would get people there some days, other people um, other times it was much quieter, but also obviously there's a element of you know, selection and curation, if you like, in terms of who I'm photographing. So I'd come from Lourdes where you had these wonderful people, wonderful looking people in kind of dramatic outfits, if you like, kind of sweeping through the town. And then suddenly I realised in Ballyverney that the portraits were going to be in a way more tricky because, however, you know, a lot of people go there on a very regular basis, but they've kind of all wearing fleeces and look very normal with glasses and grey hair and suddenly you lose the drama, you know. Um, so I did, first of all, go to the site and I would get my camera out and I mainly because the portraits were tricky because the people weren't necessarily <clears throat> as striking as they were in Lourdes. So I did a lot of uh, landscapes and I did a lot of still lifes and the still lifes ended up being the ex votos so ex votos are the objects that people leave behind as a sign of devotion um, and I soon became really interested in the significance of these ex votos but I was not really connecting with the community and then um, on one trip I was about to leave and I really still wanted to do some portraits and I actually saw that there was this tiny little art centre that I'd been driving past daily um, and I'm sure people had been kind of talking in the village like who's this nutter with a massive camera and a cloak over her head at St Godmans um, uh, but I talked to I, I just went, walked in and there was this really lovely woman who ran the local art centre and this was was this before the whole Sony thing I can't remember yeah, it was. It was way before the whole Sony thing. So at that point, you know, no one really knew about the project. Um, but they were really lovely and very warm and very inviting and offered to help gather people for portraits. Um, but then it kind of went the other way. So they almost went overboard. So I ended up <laughs> photographing a lot of people in the community, knowing that I would not use the image mm. of the book. But what was lovely was that I, when I had the exhibition, I was so pleased that I'd done those images. So although they didn't make it into the book, at the opening at the little art centre, it was lovely because everyone would be like, oh, there's Betsy and there's Joe," And we really enjoyed seeing each other on the walls of this little gallery. And I made a real effort for the exhibition. So everything was really nicely printed and we had all the lettering. And um, I think they, they really enjoyed it. And it was really something quite central to, to the community. Um, but it was really going, just plucking up a bit of courage to go into that art centre that, that opened up this world to me I suppose and then that that meant that I got to know I got to know people and I was became really part of part of the community on on each trip they were very very warm and friendly and um very accommodating 
Hmm. The the relics left behind the ex photo, the name of the book. Hmm. I think they the, the portraits are, are fabulous, but the there's a rhythm to the book where you know you're looking at these peaceful landscapes. You're looking at these. Um, the, the, there's a there's a there's a, there's a portrait of a youngish lady. Um, I guess she's she's in her sort of nurse's costume. They're not nurse either. What did you say they were called? The Order of Order of Malta. Yeah. Order of Malta. Yes. Mm -hmm. So she's quite. The landscape is dominant in the image, and she's standing in the middle with her hands in front of her. Uh, and it's such a powerful still image, and you you know you've 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 used the depth of focus beautifully as you have done in all of these all of these photographs. But she's she she's almost diminished in the landscape and. Uh, and the, mixing that with broad sweeping landscapes and then these pictures of relics that have been left. And, and I love the idea of, of the way they're just kind of deteriorating over time and they've become mm. almost objects in themselves, haven't they? And, no, they do. They become part of the landscape, really. And that was what I was interested in, how these small gestures are so meaningful for the people who leave them. So the ex photos can take a number of forms, but in the book, for instance, it's often um, a, I don't know, a cross made out of twigs or mm. a little prayer note hidden under hidden under a rock. <coughs> and yeah, they're in lots of ways they're they're tiny little gestures, but you have to think, well what you know, what are the people thinking who leave them and why are they leaving them? And um they carry a lot of significance. And I soon realised that they come in lots of, the ex-votos come in lots of forms and people leave them for a number of reasons. So sometimes it will be a prayer note, you know, tight, a little note folded really tightly and put in the, the crevice of a rock that might be to pray for someone in the family who is sick or a friend who is sick another time. Because I would sometimes read them. And actually at one point I was going to include some of what the, the, the actual text in the book and then I felt that was too intrusive and it didn't feel right but I would sometimes read them and it made me laugh because once I found one about a parking ticket someone wanting forgiveness for speeding um, <laughs> in Cork um, so it was a manner of all th it was people wanting to do well in their exams or wanting um, forgiveness for things or wanting good health um, but also in Ireland the ribbons were quite significant so there's an image in the book that is some ribbons tied around the twigs and that yeah. um that is very significant because a part of the St Gobnate story as well because every feast day they it's a bit of a strange ritual but they do the measure of St Gobnate where they get these ribbons and they measure a wooden kind of um statue of her that's in the local church so they're all tied up in different kind of stories really and different beliefs um but there was a stillness there and a quietness there and it became for me it was quite it came like a little bit of a game of discovery for me because often these these ex photos are very hidden. So there was also when I was in these pilgrimage sites, there was a sense of trying trying to find them and trying to unearth what had been left because sometimes they were very obvious, other times they were much more hidden. Um, and it was quite easy to pass them by in a sense. There's one, uh, as you've been talking, I was flicking through the book and there was one I'm particularly drawn to. Which is of uh, I, there's a, what looks like some really weathered old wood with some crosses hanging on uh, part part of the the wooden structure. Uh, it's probably part of a shrine, I think, because there's some crosses there. And then there's this in the middle. There's this photograph oh, yeah. of a lady, and it's almost becoming part of the 
the wood, isn't it? It's like it's like it's developed grain. Yeah, it's, and, it's and it's just, the whole thing is morphing into one one thing. It's very powerful. Yeah, no, um, that was in Grabarka in in eastern Poland by the border of Belarus, and that's actually where I met the nun Vera. And it's a forest of wooden crosses. So people come, pilgrims come, and they they leave the crosses behind. And like you say, that that photo, it's kind of quite spooky and quite haunting in a sense because mm. you've just got the kind of like a passport photo and just the eyes are still are still there but the rest of it's disintegrating and um yeah i was interested in how these things that people leave do become then part of the natural landscape and although the sites are all quite different in a number of ways they're all linked through the importance of of nature really so they'll the even though they were in three different countries, there would be water at every site, there would be rivers at every site, there would be forests at every site I went to in Poland, in, in Ireland and and in Lourdes. And these were the kind of ended up being the thematic ties, I suppose. So it was about belief and it was about faith and it was what people left behind, but it was also how these were all linked through the wider landscape. Yeah, and the book certainly uh, t- ties the ties those together very nicely mm-hmm. is was there much of an editing headache for you and and also how much thought has gone in and i, I imagine quite a lot <laughs> into the the way the photographs are laid out because there is a the, there is a beautiful sort of rhythm to it and it does start with a almost an abstract picture of mm. um, you know and then it bursts into these portraits and landscapes um i mean for me I kind of edit as I go along and obviously being shot on 5.4, I'm aware <laughs> every time I take a shot, I'm like 15 pounds or however much it costs. You know, I'm aware that um, <laughs> I can't, from a financial point of view, I, I can't just shoot, shoot, shoot. And I don't no. I don't really want to in a sense when I'm working in that way anyway. So I didn't, I mean, I've got all the contacts at my studio. I probably only took, I don't, it's hard to say, maybe 500 shots and there's 50 in the book. Yeah. Um, and I would only do one or two plates of each portrait. Um, so I was quite careful, frugal, if you like, about how I how I um, used the film and how much and how much I actually took. So the editing, in a sense, for me, was quite straightforward because as soon as I got the contacts back, and I don't I don't develop them. I'm not good enough in the dark room. I'm not confident enough. So I go I go to a lab in London and they develop and do contact sheets for me. And as soon as I get the contacts back, it would be quite clear to me which ones worked and which ones didn't. So I would mark them on the contacts. So by the time I went to Ghost Books, who are the publishers, um, I kind of had my edit. But Stu Smith, who is the designer there and who who started Ghost, is in himself an extremely good editor and sequencer. And he actually said to me, I want to see every contact sheet. I want to see every shot you've done for this project. So immediately I thought, oh, God, that means you're going to see all the rubbish ones as well. Or, you know, I don't, I kind of am a little bit protective about my work, a bit like, well, I don't know if I want to show you everything I've shot. But I said, oh, okay then. And what was interesting, you know, I think sometimes you can be too close to your own work um, and you have in your head favourites. And sometimes your shots are favourites because, for instance, the one of Joe Kelly was one of my favourites because I'd had such a laugh with him like hanging out at his at his house in in Ireland but actually that doesn't mean it's one of the strongest portraits or that it fits in the book so it's quite interesting to have and very useful to have someone else's perspective to see what works and actually through giving Stu every contact there were three or four that I had dismissed that he felt worked really well 
And then how he works is rather than doing it on a computer, I printed everything out just on kind of photocopies, like very loose, like low res images. And we just laid it all out on the floor in front of us in his office. So you've got at that point, I maybe had still not that many, maybe 100 images. That was the kind of first edit. And then he did a kind of sequencing, like you said, that had that kind of had this quiet rhythm that kind of built up and then you go back, kind of brings you back down a bit. And he he put them he put the edit together and there were maybe two or three small changes that I made, but on the whole the edit that he did is and the sequencing is is how the book has has ended up being. Um so he was incredibly helpful for that. But in terms of how the book looks and the paper and the design, I had quite a clear idea. You know, I wanted it to be quite elegant and quite beautiful, but also quite traditional with not, I didn't want it to be too fussy or complicated. And I wanted the images to really kind of have this, this power and this rhythm and this pace to them that was, that almost took you on a bit of a journey as, you know, the viewer or the reader. And also the essay, I mean, there's an essay by your sister at the beginning oh. and then two at the back. I, and mm. what, I, uh, what I like about these is so often in photo books, the, the essays, I read them and thought, I'm not quite sure what I've just read. But actually yeah. these are, these are um, written in a way that is very, very accessible and, and complements the work. Oh, good. That was uh, really important tremendously. because, um, yeah, I agree. There's some there's some essays that you read about well um, statements and exhibitions that are just ludicrous you know they're <laughs> filled with so much um bullshit yeah well so many words that are unnecessary and don't really need to be there and mm. um a lot of pretentious use of language and mm. i wanted uh, yeah i mean i wanted the essays i didn't want to write anything myself because i wasn't really confident about that and i also felt that what I wanted to say was said already in, in how I'd taken the images, but I also felt it was important that there was some contextualization through the essays. And I was very keen that I wanted, yeah, I wanted them to be accessible and that it would enrich the kind of reader experience, if you like. And Sean O'Hagan, who wrote one of the essays, um, who writes, he's the photography critic for the Guardian. And he's always been, he's been a really big supporter of this project. And um, I was really happy when he, when he agreed to do one of the essays, because he's just such a great writer and he really got, he really got the project. He really understood it and he really understood my way of thinking. Um, so for him to be able to, to put that into words was really kind of valuable for me and really significant. Um, and then my sister is an academic and historian. And also as she pointed out, we didn't just want two essays by men. We wanted, and we wanted a female, another female voice in there as well. And um, it made sense that, we would kind of work together on that so yeah I'm, ha- I'm, ha- I'm happy with the essays I'm glad you said that because that is really important to me that you read it and you come away having learned something rather than coming away yeah. completely puzzled and confused about what's been said oh I absolutely did yes I, I loved all the references to you know pilgrimages what they meant in the past mm-hmm. and how they became corrupted and mm-hmm. the whole Luther Calvin thing oh, good. Mm-hmm. my sister will be pleased I'll have to pass it on to <laughs> I think it lost me a lot of sales unfortunately because um the book's actually nearly sold out, which is brilliant. But I, recently... I just bought another copy, by the way, while oh, we've been sorry. talking. Oh, thank you. And I sent you an email asking if you can write something into my daughter oh, for Christmas. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but I had a big, recently, a big um, 
pilgrim uh, tour company in America get in touch wanting to buy several hundred copies, which is a lot when you've only got a run of a thousand as well. Is that what it is? There's a thousand. There's a thousand, yeah. And then there's some special edition, 50 special editions. Um, And I was quite, you know, I was obviously quite pleased about that because no one wants boxes of their books just sitting around. No, I can't imagine these will stay unsold. Well, thank you. I mean, they, they have actually, I, I, I said to the, the guy at the, pil- uh, the tour place that I only, could only give him 150 and he, we went, we got through to the stage where we'd actually made an agreement and he'd asked me to send him an invoice and then he wrote back saying, I'm really sorry, but we've got to cancel the order because um, the head of the, it's a Catholic um, tour guide kind of company, um, feels that some of our clients might find some of the text quite controversial. Um, mm-hmm. Although he said, I don't agree with that at all, but I think, um, and then I realised my sister mentions Jesus's foreskin in the intro, so maybe that didn't go down very well. <laughs> well <laughs> so I blame my sister for losing out well, on those sales, but never mind. See, I come from a wing of the Christian church that has a sense of humour. So yeah, so I know, I know. I mean, a big deal. Yeah, and it was a holy relic, or is it? Anyway. <laughs> but um anyway but i am generally I'm, I'm happy with how the three essays work together and i think it, no, it, no, it's, it something. it's great so listen, listeners you need to um <laughs> to head over to alice's site and, and get your book before they all fall out. <laughs> one thing i just very quickly because I, I sense simon's probably going to wrap up fairly soon mm-hmm. the publisher um i heard you say i don't know how you pronounce it but let's spell it g-o-s-t it's called ghost so ghost yeah. without the h go yeah. on simon you know all about um it's a curious name for a publisher, isn't it, Simon? It, it is, but I'm not sure why you're asking me that question. To be well, because it's about Russian. It's Russian standards, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, that's. G- it's, I didn't quite catch it. Is it spelled with an H? No, G O S T. Because the two guys who started it, one of them was called jo- one of them was called Gordon, the G O, and then it uh. the other one S T. So they put them together. Yeah, so I think nothing to do with a technical standards organisation in Russia. Exactly. I th- I'm pretty sure that's got an H. Oh, no, it hasn't. It's G O S T. Oh, right. It's okay. Yeah, I'll, it's I'll cool. that one. Not very, yeah. But they're really Sorry. great. They're a great independent um, photography publishers, and they have what I really liked about them. They were really, they had a great understanding of the work, and they are very sensitive to each photography project that they publish. So every book feel has a very different feel and style to mm. it um that some publishers i feel can almost have a bit of a template that they that they churn out so books end up looking the same and i felt with goss that every book was very carefully considered and um yeah showed showed the work off to kind of its its best yeah they have a website don't they gossbook.com that's them i guess so i had a very good experience although i had to do a kickstarter that was a bit stressful because yes, I saw some I, when I mentioned on face on our Facebook group that you were coming on. Somebody said they were a Kickstarter backer, and, and to oh. be honest, I'm I'm a great follower of filmy related Kickstarters, but I'm I completely missed it. So, oh, that's a shame. But I've caught up. I've caught up now. Uh, yeah. um, I mean, unfortunately, that's kind of the way that a lot of independent photography publishers work sure, now, which yeah. is a kind of no risk strategy for them. Um, but they just don't make enough money. Photography books just don't make enough money. So it's up to, you know, you get a publishers, which is great. And everyone's like, oh, we've got a publishing deal. Well, yeah, but you've got to stump up all the production costs. Um, so I don't know if that's something I would ever do again. But it worked. I basically sold I pre, I sold um, pre-orders of the book. And also it was great because it was just after the Sony. So that had had a lot of press. So the timing yeah. was lucky as well. 
but it was quite an exhausting um experience doing the kickstarter because you have to kind of be on it you know all the time yeah yeah no kickstarters are a, mm. a thing in themselves the, the the gust website i'm just looking at their titles and it mm. yeah it's a very interesting uh uh portfolio of books yeah the great uh, myth yeah yeah they look for i mean martin parr's name i recognize hong kong mm-hmm. parr mm-hmm. um he's done quite a few magnum photographers books as well yeah. um, a handbook for dog walkers oh yeah that's i think their best seller yeah <laughs> <laughs> right well yeah oh sorry simon you should i just thoroughly recommend folks go to the gosp website and look at this book uh, a handbook for dog walkers <laughs> i think it's basically every place where dogs pee i think <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> but there's a little dog in every image, a little toy, a little uh, soft dog, not a real dog. You know what I'm talking about, toy dog. Well, I I, I think um, ending on the note of uh, urinating dogs is, uh, is, is is where we'll go. But that's that's definitely better than end, ending on uh, the the foreskin of Jesus. I think. <laughs> so, um, right. So. Um, you know what we do have a couple of emails but i think we're going we're probably running short of time so i think we'll um yeah. those, those emails we'll put into another week um so uh thank you for being our guest uh with us this week alice it's been absolutely good. fascinating good good hope you've enjoyed it <laughs> oh, we, 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 we certainly have good. um andrew do you have any shout outs you want to do this week no, no, I, no. I'm I, I'm spending far too long researching the guests, unlike you, Simon, with your fifteen minutes. <laughs> so I'm sure you've got several. I, I did. I did spend more than that. But it was just. It was just a case of. It was only fifteen minutes before recording that I. I realised the the, uh, the the magnitude of the guests that we actually had with us. But so oh. I'd already. Uh, I'd already commented on the the. the the quality of the photos I've been looking at, and yeah. uh, and then I, and I thought, oh, that sounds a little bit condescending now, <laughs> based upon just you know uh, how how awarded our guest is. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, I like so I liked your stuff before I knew you were famous. Um, so <laughs> well, you, you, definitely not famous. <laughs> you've now hit the pinnacle of fame by appearing on the large format <laughs> photography podcast. <laughs> Um, okay well um, I've, I've just got one shout out um, and that's my regular shout out really for the Six Towns Dark Room uh, in Stoke-on-Trent that we meet every Tuesday is that, is that the one where six men hover around a bowl of fruit with lights for two hours um, well it was actually hovering around a camera there because I was I was trying to use my uh, my Sinar uh, the same same one as uh, Alice and oh, yeah. uh, and I, I I managed to plug in my Hasselblad to it, and uh, and I was using the Sinol with probably the same 150 mil lens mm. um, as a as a macro device uh, by using the extension of the the, the bellows. Um, so uh, I've done an extreme macro shot, which it took about two and a half hours to achieve, and really wasn't worth it. 
um, <laughs> but I did it, and uh, it, it was uh, it, it was fun. But yeah, we do we do things like that at the Six Towns Darkroom because we haven't just got a darkroom; well, we've actually got more of a studio than a darkroom. So uh, I wondered when Alice was talking about her City and Guilds experience. I want I wondered if she'd actually been to your one of your two <laughs> evenings. <laughs> oh, we're not planning on repeating that one, but uh, um, but yeah, if anybody wants to come along to those uh, every every Tuesday night, and uh, and it's 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 a good laugh as much as anything. Uh, we we do a bit of developing, we do a bit of printing. I say do a bit of printing. I I don't do much printing because I'm hopeless at it. I just need to do more printing. Um, but we also do do other things, such as uh, I was trying out this uh, shutter testing there uh, last week and failing. You know, so it's um, anything to do with cameras um, and printing and developing. Um, we we give it a go and we sort of all help each other out to give each other a bit, bit of advice and so on. And eventually one day we'll have a, a large format and larger so we can actually print uh, large format other than uh, doing contact prints, which I still need to do. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, one, contact one prints are lovely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, although it's got to say that's 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 sort of one of the drivers for wanting to get ten by eight, isn't it? So uh, to to do uh, contact prints at ten by eight, that just sounds fantastic to me. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so that's that's my shout out. Uh, Andrew's had his shout out. Have you got any shout outs, Alice? Um, I would like to say thank you to I don't know if you know a guy called Seb at North London Darkroom, um, because when I joined the gallery I'm with called Hackleberry fairly well about a year ago now um they wanted all my the exhibition prints to be gelatin silver prints and a lot of them are quite small but some of them are huge and it's actually really hard finding like you were just saying um darkroom printers who print that that big now like 40 by 30 inches was over that and um he came to the rescue a bit as did Robin Bell he's based in Hastings who was brilliant and also Mike Crawford from Lighthouse Darkroom in London, who does all my smaller prints. So they're my kind of printing team. And also North London Darkroom do a series of workshops on alternative processes. And they're just really, really nice guys. And also I'd like to say, hi, I don't know if they listen, but Photo Fusion have been really brilliant in Brixton in terms of supporting me and supporting other photographers. And they do lots of really great stuff with the community as well so they're a really really good organization they've got their own dark rooms as well now oh, that's good I'm, I'm sure that andrew was furiously writing down those, uh, <laughs> oh, well, uh, well i'm familiar with robin bell well all the names there uh, yeah certainly robin and mike crawford i'm familiar with yeah robin yeah. bell has been around for donkey's years yeah. doyen of uh jellison silver printing yeah yeah he's done a lot of great photographers work so they've all been really really helpful um when i've been faced with certain difficulties printing that big and all sorts of things anyway they, they've all been great so yeah. well andrew writes the the show notes so we'll we'll put those links okay, in, thank in, you. in the show notes and uh, just for people listening if you want to see the show notes there's two ways of doing that uh, you can go to podbean uh, which is the host that we use for this podcast if you just go onto the podbean website and type in large format photography podcast you will find um, our page and it has all the notes alternatively um, you can find um, the notes in our facebook group uh, which is unimaginatively called the large format photography podcast uh, <laughs> facebook group it doesn't say facebook group in it but that's what it is um, so we we would whatever the latest post is uh, you'll see that at the top of the page and uh, and you can comment there as well um, 
you can comment in the uh, in in Podbean as well, but it, it doesn't work that well. So uh, um, it's a particularly good way to. Um, in fact, the group as a whole is a, is a good way to keep up with the kind of things that we do. Plus, there's a growing community there of um, of posting things about large format in general. Um, and you know, if anybody asks a question, there are lots of people that just can't wait to help you. Um, so it's a it's a great community and it's growing. Um, so mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we love our little group. Mm -hmm. um, okay, um, so bringing things to an end, uh, Alice. Um, how can people see your work? Um, do you, are you on various different kinds of social media, all that kind of stuff? Um, so I'm on yeah Instagram. It's just Alice Tomlinson, and I spell my name A L Y S as well, which is the Welsh spelling. So Alice spelled A L Y S Tomlinson. Um, find me on Instagram, and my gallery is called Hackleberry Gallery. They're based in London, so you can look them up. They're, they've got some really interesting work. They've got a William Klein show at the moment um and they're great because they take work to all the big art fairs so it kind of appears at mm. ipad and harry photo and photo london um so that's really great and what else my website is alicetomlinson.co.uk and i think you've already mentioned ghost books they're worth a look because some yeah. of their titles are really really exciting um yeah i think that's it okay well thank thank you again it's been an absolute yeah. joy to have you with us um, yeah really um, has been a pleasure thank you i hope it was interesting for people i'm, I, I'm sure it will be um <laughs> andrew how can people mm -hmm. follow you outside of this show uh, mostly on all those social media outlets twitter and instagram as warboys snapper which is my village where i live and hanging out in the l large format photography uh, facebook group page try and keep a fairly active presence in there um, so you'll you'll find me there and you can also listen to us probably every two weeks going forward on uh, sundays at the lensless podcast which goes out on sundays when you say us you don't mean me do me you? and no not me and you simon no me and my other wife um <laughs> my other podcast wife uh, cory cannon in north carolina Okay, and uh, if you want to write into the show and or email into the show, I should say, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, we do have a couple of emails that we were going to read out, but we've we've uh, pretty got engrossed uh, with Alice there. That I don't mm -hmm. think we've really got the time to do those or do them justice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, if you send an email to large format photography podcast at gmail.com uh, and that will come through and uh, at some point we will get uh, to, to read that out. Um, the show also goes out on YouTube. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. Um, there's no there's no video as such. It's just a pure audio channel. But if um, English isn't your uh, native language and you struggle with some of the things that we say, then you can actually listen to the show with subtitles uh, on YouTube and well, good luck with that with some of the things that uh, those those automatic uh, translations come up with. But um, yeah, and there are a few people that uh, um, like to take advantage of that kind of service. So uh, if you just search large format photography podcast on YouTube, you'll also find the show there. Um, as for me, I'm on Instagram, 
as Simon Forster Photographic. I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. Uh, hang out in the, uh, the in the Facebook group. Um, you can also hear me weekly um, on the Classic Lenses podcast, which goes out on the Monday. Um, and I think that's just about it. Uh, our music uh, is by. Uh, Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and it's called Two Finger Johnny um, and oh I just just remember something there was after we finished talking hang on a little bit longer because we have a message from M of Emulsive and don't worry it's not too long um, but it's about the uh, Emulsive Secret Santa event uh, for 2019 uh, which you've only got a short period of time now to take to to register for that. I think it, I think the registration is closed at the end of October, and that's a round robin uh, analog photography gift exchange scheme. Um, and you'll hear a bit, little bit more about it with uh, with the M's message, or you just go to his website, uh, which is emulsive.org. And if you've not been there before and you're interested in film photography, you really, really need to go to emulsive.org because there's just about all the photography, all of analogue photography is there. Um, so so that's it. So uh, thank you uh, again. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, and thank you, Alice, uh, for, for being with us. Um, that's it. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show, or this fortnight show, I should say, and it'd be great if you can join us again next time. So goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hello everyone, M here from Emulsive, hope you're well. I'm invading this podcast very quickly just to do a little plug, a plugette, if you will, about this year's Emulsive Secret Santa. We started registration on October 1st. Um, at the time of recording, which is, I think, October 17th, we have around about 760 players in 50 countries uh, playing along. It's fantastic. It's the fifth year. <clears throat> Not sure if we're going to hit uh, the same levels that we did last year, which was around about 1,160 people in uh, ooh, 55 countries. But I'd love to get as many people from the community on board and sending gifts out. If you haven't signed up yet, but you want to find out more, just jump onto emulsive.org, check out the red banner at the top of the page, and you should just be able to click a link there and jump in and register and do everything that you need to do to get to get yourself sorted. If for some reason you can't see the banner, maybe it's just too annoying and you've cleared it out, you can just go ahead and search for Secret Santa 2019 on the website. Um, and again, you should find a link to the article there. You can jump in, see what it's all about, Look at all of the, the images and, and, and other selected information from the past year's events and, uh, and go and sign up. Uh, registration is open until the 31st of October, so there are 14 days left, I guess, at the time of recording. But, you know, why bother putting off tomorrow at what you can do today? Looking forward to seeing you on. Cheers.